good morning and welcome. We are glad you're here today. I'm glad I'm here today. I appreciate uh, Wes Crago uh, for uh, filling in last week. He didn't get the news until Saturday afternoon, but I'd lost my voice. And uh, so Wes very graciously filled in last week. I appreciate the elders and the ability to do that uh, for them. Uh, so today we return. Uh, by the way, uh, your sermon uh, bulletin insert notes, sermon notes are the same as they were last week. So if you studied this week, you should be, know all the answers as you go through uh, those sermon notes. But I included those for your uh, uh, just uh, ability to grow in the truth of God's word maybe as a help for you. But today we come back uh, to this letter of Ephesians, and uh, we are in a course of study through this little letter of Ephesians, which really is the high point of the New Testament uh, on how to be the church. And the Apostle Paul is uh, teaching us through there in two major sections, chapters 1 through 3. He's talking and reminding believers in Jesus Christ of our wealth that we have in Christ. And in chapters 4 through 6 of our walk in light of our wealth that we have in chapters 1 through 3. And we've gone through chapter 1. And uh, in that passage is a one and long extended uh, passage in a prayer uh, which the Apostle Paul has done, and he's laid out many of the riches, spiritual riches we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, Ephesians is written to believers uh, in Asia Minor in the first century, about 60 AD, and uh, they were the original recipients, and yet God has superintended and protected his word, and we it's come down to us today, and it is fundamental to understanding what it means to be the church. Remember, the church is not this building. The church is you all here in this local expression of the body of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul has been teaching some very deep uh, positional truths that we need to get a hold of and grasp by faith. Uh, because there's an aspect of New Testament teaching, like the Apostle Paul has done here in chapters 1 through 3, that... Uh, is about our position in Christ. In other words, how God sees you after you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And we uh, grab that by faith because that's what God says and God does not lie. Uh, but then there's the very real aspect as I look out that each one of us has a story and each one of us is, lives in a context of life. And uh, we have neighborhoods and families and workplaces and schools. And uh, I call that our condition uh, there's our position and then our, our condition. And, of course, uh, we live in this world in this time, and we're kind of bound by time. And uh, so our condition plays very real into our experience, obviously. Uh, but the Apostle Paul in chapters 4 through 6 will have some answers for us about our condition and how to live in light of the wealth and the riches we have in Jesus Christ. This week I was reading an article. I don't know anything about medical school, and I'm glad for that because you would not want me to be your surgeon because I faint when I see blood. So, so uh, my uh, vocational path is really to your benefit here today. But uh, I was reading an article by David McRaney uh, in which he writes, in medical school, uh, they tell you half of what you are about to learn won't be true when you graduate. They just don't know which half won't be true when you graduate. It's called the half-life of facts. Uh, in every field of knowledge, half of what is true today will one day be updated with better information, and it turns out that we actually know when that day will come for many academic pursuits. 
This is what, uh, this is McGarrity speaking. This is what author Sam Abraham calls the half-life of facts. The premise is that for every domain, every discipline, every school of knowledge, the facts contained are slowly being overturned, augmented, replaced, and refined. And in medicine, for example, the rate of that overturning is high enough that if you that you will never really complete your education. Medical school, in other words, never ends. Think about that next time you go to see your physician, by the way. <laughs> for instance, in some other disciplines, such as physics, about half of all research findings will be disconfirmed within 13 years. In other words, they will be found to be false and not factual. In psychology, it's every seven years that the half-life of facts extends. In other words, if you graduated with a degree in psychology seven years ago, half of the information in all of your textbooks is now inaccurate. Isn't that interesting? And that's why we're called to be lifelong learners in whatever discipline you have focused on. You know, by contrast, this book claims to be the very word of God. We accept it as the very word of God. In fact, millions of people the world over for the last 4,000 years or so have proved that the truths that matter are not nullified by the passing of time. When you think of the word of God, there are no half-life of facts contrary to what liberal theology tells us. And with the passing of time, we learn more about the Word of God if we are engaged in it and learning from it. But there is no half-life of truth that God loves us that was expressed here this morning and that Jesus came in the world to die for us and to rise again from the dead. These truths are grounded, when you think about it, in the Almighty God's unfailing nature and they will never be overturned or replaced. Isn't that amazing? You know, I was asked uh, some time ago about my experience as I went to graduate school, went to seminary, and I was asked something to the effect of the question is, have you uh, repudiated some of what you learned there? Have you grown in other ways and have left behind some of the things? And I have to say, uh, where I went to seminary, the program I was in, we studied all 66 books of the Bible over a four-year span, and I can say that I used that, uh, that education every day of my life and that I've not repudiated anything I've been taught. And uh, so it's wonderful that the Bible, the Word of God, it's simple enough that a child can understand great truths, and yet it is, uh, it is so deep and such a discipline because we're dealing with an infinite God uh, that we spend a lifetime studying the Word of God. Uh, the great prophet Isaiah in his book, chapter 40, verse 8, says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Great promise from the prophet. Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, writes, For I will tell you truly, and this is Jesus' words, For I tell you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single jot, not a stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's a fantastic verse right there because uh, Jesus is referring to when he talks about a jot, there's just a little tiny mark in the Hebrew language which accentuates a letter, and it is a letter, the letter Yod, and he's saying uh, that's not going to disappear. It's just a, hardly a, a mark of ink on the page when you would look at a Hebrew Bible. And so we look at the Word of God, and there is no half-life of facts. 
and uh, it remains true and sovereign. And that's why we come to the book of Ephesians, because one of the things about living out the Christian life, about life in general, is all of us make decisions, don't we? We have decisions that must be made. Some of them are important decisions. Many others don't seem to make much difference. But when you're confronted with a decision, how important is it to know the truth? We gather the facts. Some people are quick decision makers. They can, they can look at facts and get with them really quick, uh, whereas others are slower. I have a friend in Wisconsin. It took him three years to buy a pickup truck because he was gathering the facts. You know, that's kind of an extreme example, and he's very cautious, and that's okay. But when you're confronted uh, with decision and when you have options, competing options as you make a decision, how vital are the facts? Well, I think the facts are very vital, especially uh, in very important decisions. And when you're standing at the crossroads trying to chart out a successful course and how critical is it to have accurate information, uh, we want, uh, when we fly on an airliner, we want the pilot to critically analyze all the facts that come through the data that he is receiving in the cockpit. We don't want somebody who's just very lackadaisical about the weather and the context of how the airplane is flying. Uh, We want somebody who pays attention to critical decision factors in that case. When consequences are weighty, as many consequences and decisions are in life, uh, when the outcomes are not equal, but they are eternal outcomes, when we think of eternal outcomes, when the destinations are as different as heaven and hell, Uh, then every one of us will surely want to know the truth, especially the gospel truth as laid out for us here today. Fortunately, when it comes to our core issues of our life, uh, how we relate to the living God, the Bible gives us completely reliable and accurate information. There's no half-life of facts here. God is declared, and thus it is so. And the Bible is completely reliable. It clearly and explicitly lays out the facts of eternal destination that does not is not garbled as we reach uh, for the answers about what happens after this life. And this is one of the best places in the Bible. The truth of the gospel is set forth for us here in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, if you've been a Christian long and a Bible student, you've probably quoted many of these verses many times, these 10 verses out of the second chapter of apostles, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, one writer has called it a veritable mind, uh, mind of spiritual truth. The first three verses tell us the truth about ourselves. The four verses four through seven tell us the truth about God. And the final three verses tell us the truth about salvation. Remember the apostle Paul is writing here to believers. And uh, he tells us here, he discusses with us, he gives us First of all, the bad news, and then he gives us some good news. And he gives us the bad news first. The bad news is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The bad news is our human condition, our human condition. And as we approach the holidays, as we approach Christmas season, where we remember and uh, actually celebrate the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember that he is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, being our advocate. He is our great high priest, and so God never changes, but he does have some bad news. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter uh, 2 are really a condensed version of Romans chapters uh, 1 through 3. 
We look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, and it's a condensed version of Romans chapters 1 through 3, where he argues, first of all, uh, for the case that uh, the pagans are lost, the pagans have great guilt, and then he argues that the Jewish people have great guilt, and then finally in those verses in Romans, he argues that all people have great guilt, whether they're Jewish, pagan, or Gentile in that. And we see the bad news is our human condition. First of all, the bad news number one is we were dead. We were dead. When we think of death, we think of physical death most of the time. And what happens at physical death? It's the separation of the soul and spirit from our physical frame. And uh, it's basically a separation. And when we think of spiritual death, that's a separation from God. And so it's the inability to communicate, inability Uh, to do anything. And so there is this spiritual condition, everyone's spiritual condition outside of Christ. Look at verse 1 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He's coming off of this great prayer in the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he prays that in verse 18, prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance for the saints. And he is praying and he's expanding upon that prayer so that each believer would understand where we have come from and where we are going and what the great blessings we have. But the bad news is first, this death is spiritual. It's not, uh, he's not speaking about physical death here. It's uh, unsaved people who do not know Jesus as Savior are very much alive physically. We know that. Uh, death signifies an absence of communication with the living one. One who is dead spiritually has no communication with God. He is separated from God. And Paul gives us three realms uh, where we are dead. First of all, he says, you are dead in your trespasses. That word that Paul uses there is also found in chapter 1, verse 7. When you look over there, you find that same uh, word where he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It means a false step. It means involving the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. Uh, years and years ago when we lived in Montana, my brother-in-law, my then brother-in-law, my older sister's husband, uh, was quite a fisherman, and he and I were out driving looking for a place to fish. And we looked off the side of the, the road, and uh, there was a beautiful little lake down there. We thought, we're going to go fishing there. And we uh, purposefully ignored the no trespassing signs. And we went down to the lake, started fishing, and, boy, we were catching, like we used to say, brook trout as long as your arm, you know, beautiful fish. And then we noticed a guy in a Jeep coming around from the other side, and uh, we were trespassing. And he was not happy because those were his fish. And that's the idea here. It's a false step involving the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation of a right path. And he is applying it to all people. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. He's talking about past tense. You were dead in your trespasses. Secondly, uh, dead in our sins. It's a different word. It's the act of missing the mark. And it's really an archery term in the world of archery. Don's middle brother for many years built uh, long bows and recurve bows, and he hunted with a bow. He hunted in Africa and all over the West here, and uh, he was he's really a good shot with a bow, and he gave me a bow, and, and uh, I would shoot at the target, and I would miss the bullseye. It's missing the mark, and you know what? Even her brother missed the mark most of the time, as good as he was, 
And uh, it's the idea that we're missing the mark. They're falling short of the standard of God's righteousness and holiness. Both suggest, both is dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, that they are deliberate acts against God and his righteousness and the failure to live as we are designed to live. And these two nouns are in the plural form, if you notice, which signifies a repetitious involvement in sin and a state of being unregenerate, a state of being unregenerate. Uh, Isaiah 59.2 tells us that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And uh, these two words cover an active and passive sense, aspects of human wrongdoing. Sin is not just those little mistakes, but it is a contrary to the word who God is in his character. We are rebels and failures, uh, even as perhaps a five-year-old is a rebel when you think about it. I was a rebel from the time I was born until I was 28, shaking my fist in God's face. And if you think you're exempt from that evaluation or that appraisal, think of Romans 2.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's that missing the mark. And if you think you're a pretty good person, let me put it into mathematical terms. Imagine, if you will, that you only commit three sins a day. Now, that'd be pretty good, right? You know, just three, three sins a day. Imagine that. Well, if you do the math, uh, excuse me, that's... 1,056 sins a year, and if you live to be 70 years old, that's 73,920 sins. Now imagine a criminal with a rap sheet that long going in front of a judge. Do you think you're going to get leniency or be uh, given, given a free pass? So with a record like that, you cannot stand before any judge and say you are not that bad. So dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. And in the first part of verse 2, in chapter 2, he says, in which you formally walked, in which you formally walked. There's the idea of lifestyle here. It's a Hebrew uh, terminology, which means when we walk, it's a lifestyle. It's how we behave. Uh, Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them out from the rest of us and then to destroy them. But he goes on to say, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You know, we need a a new heart. We don't need a new start, a new life, not just turning over a new leaf, a resurrection, not just reformation. Rededicating your life or signing a pledge card will not do it. It's only no one can live truly life-pleasing life until they receive Christ and his life that he gives to us. Bad news number one, we were dead, unable to communicate, separated. Secondly, he tells us our human condition that we were enslaved, lacking freedom, and we were in captivity. Look at the rest of verse 2 in this. in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, all formerly lived. We all formerly lived. We were enslaved, dead in our former walk. We were enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh, the apostle Paul is explaining here. According to the world, this age, this cosmos, it's the satanically organized system 
that hates and opposes all that is good. We see that in John 15, John 15, 18, and 23. We are enslaved by the prince and power of the air or by the devil himself. The unsaved follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is Satan. The whole world is under control of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19, he's called the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in the middle of the tribulation, he will be cast down to earth and no longer have rule or access to God and his presence, Revelation 12, chapter 9. The unsaved, those who do not know Jesus as their savior, are in the clutches of this ruler and follow in this opposition to God. This spirit he talks about is an impersonal force or mood that is directed by Satan that is now at work in our midst, working in the sons of disobedience, it says there in that verse in 2. The word for sons has the idea of distinctive characteristics here. A son of disobedient is one who is distinctly a disobedient person. Uh, It's used several times in the New Testament. It uh, suggests conscious and active rebellion, opposition to God himself. This is really getting to be worse news. This is bad news of who we were. And then finally, we were enslaved by the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And it's not just uh, those overt kind of external sins, but it is all the sins that are self-centered. It's self-centered human nature, indulging the desires of our flesh and our thoughts. So bad news number one, we were dead. Bad news number two, we were enslaved. Bad news number three, we were condemned, unable to save ourselves. Look at the second part of verse three with me. In verse 3, he tells us, Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, condemned in our sinful nature. Romans 5.12 tells us that all have sinned. It says, Therefore, just as though one man, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, Adam's sin was imputed to us, and there's different arguments about how that occurred, whether it's realistic or biological or corporate solidarity, legal. It's called the federal theory of sin and how it's passed down from generation to generation. But nevertheless, the Bible teaches that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God is condemning that and condemns everybody because of that. Unbelievers have a close relationship, not with God, but with his wrath. And we get very uncomfortable with wrath, don't we? Uh, Wrath, we usually equate it with human wrath, and it seems to be uh, just not quite a godlike thing. But this is a different thing than what we think of as wrath when we do that. And God has to deal with the sin of the world. C.S. Lewis put it very aptly when he said, No clever arrangement of bad eggs will make a good omelet. And uh, that's so true. You know, uh, all of our good works are like bad eggs uh, when they're done in the flesh. And a radical disease requires a radical remedy. And so that's why uh, God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's not an arbitrary reaction to us. Uh, It's not an impersonal process because God is personal, righteous, and he is constantly hostile to evil. And his settled refusal to compromise with it and resolve instead to condemn it. And uh, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. If you notice the end of verse 3 where it talks about uh, the nature of children of wrath even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy. You know, uh, God's character takes that all into account. 
Paul moves from the wrath of God to the mercy and love of God without hesitation. Uh, I was thinking about God's wrath, and when's the last time you thanked God for his wrath, praised him for his wrath? Have you ever thought about that? I think we should, because when I think about it, we need to be more grateful to God for his wrath and to worship him, because his righteousness is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same way, unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way, Without moral constancy, we could no longer enjoy peace because we would never know how God was going to react. It's kind of like the parent who lets his child go crazy one day and the next day throws the law down. You know, there's inconsistency in that. Uh, But God is consistent in that, and we should worship him for his wrath. In fact, I'm trying to think if I've heard any Christian songs praising God for his wrath. So though if you aspiring songwriters out there, maybe that's a place you could look at. Uh, The wrath of God is not the entire story here, though. That is the bad news. But now the good news in verses 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 6, we see what God has done. In those first two words in verse 4, but God. Two monosyllabic words, but God. You know, the bad news is, is there's no hope. There's no way to get out of this. We are declared as dead by God himself. But it says, but God, what God has done. And he gives us three verses, or three verbs, excuse me here, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him. Made us alive together with Christ. I think John R.W. Stott calls this resurrection, raised us up with him, ascension, seated us with him, session. In other words, we have communion and fellowship with the God of the universe because of what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, We have been saved. Uh, If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you believed in him for everlasting life, you were justified, declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's a momentary, a point in time. Mine was when I was 28 years old, when I was justified because of what God declared because of what Jesus Christ has done. Sometime in the future, I don't know when, but I know God numbers our days, Psalm 139, I will be glorified. And in justification, I was declared righteous, and I was freed from the penalty of sin. In glorification, I will be freed from the very presence of sin. And in this sin-soaked world, isn't it going to be amazing to get to heaven where there is no sin? And I will be glorified. This part in between is sanctification, where I am being saved, present tense, from the very power of sin. The good news is is that Jesus Christ has made us alive together with Christ, and that verb, have been saved, is in the perfect tense, which expresses the present permanent state as the result of a past action. Because we have been made alive spiritually with Christ, we have been and we are saved. Salvation is more than just that moment back when I was 28, or whenever you trusted in Christ as Savior, of being justified. Salvation is the whole package of justification, sanctification, and glorification, and it's all by grace through faith. And so he raised us up. This speaks of us being positionally resurrected with him. Christ's post-resurrection state was powerful, new, and unique. When you think of when Christ appeared before his ascension after the crucifixion, He was different. If you want a glimpse of heaven, look at Jesus when he appeared to the 12 and to many others in the Gospels. 
We have a new, powerful, unique life and position that he declares and then seated with us with him. And what would we be seated on? Jesus is seated on a throne. We are with him, seated on the throne in session. We are spiritually in heaven where Christ is. There are no longer, we are no longer mere earth people. We have a foot in each place. And sometimes that gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? Positionally. But we believe what God says about us. And we need to see it a new way. We need to grab that. Remember, Jesus Christ is our advocate, 1 John 2, 1, which one means that he goes in our place. He is our intercessor, Romans eight thirty four. When Satan accuses us before the Father, uh, even rightfully so, because we all sin, Jesus Christ is our intercessor. And also he is our great high priest. Why do we need a priest if you're a believer? Because we still sin. And he is the one who is paid for those sins. He is the one who extends his grace and mercy in that. So God has done these things, made us alive, raised us up, seated us with him. All positional truth, but very important for us to understand it so we know how to live out this life. Now, why did God do this in verses 7 through 10? Look at verses 7 through 10 again. Very familiar verses as we go uh, through this in chapter 2. So that in the ages to come... He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And uh, he tells us here that it's a demonstration of the riches of his grace. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. You cannot earn grace. Uh, Grace is unmerited favor. It's the appropriate expression of God's love to those who are spiritually dead to give them life. The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness. As you read about God's wrath in that first part, Remember in verse 4 that he is rich in mercy. He has great love. Underline those words. In the end of chapter 5, by grace you have been saved. In the end of chapter 7, uh, riches of his grace in kindness. Think about that. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. It's like, like a hymn that runs through this book about how he sees us. He demonstrates the riches of his grace. He demonstrates his grace, not our works. Verses 8 and 9, very familiar. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and that is a re- not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The fundamental issue of what God is doing for his people. Again, as you go through the first part of Ephesians, look at what your requirements are. And there aren't there other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Demonstrate his grace, not our works. Uh, grace is the basis of salvation. Faith is the means of that salvation, and it is the gift of God. The whole package here of salvation by grace through faith is the means. It's not a transactional process where God gives us grace and we put our faith in him. Even our faith is given to him. It is a gift. The whole process is a gift, the ability to believe. And when I think about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, to use a a medical example here, when a surgeon does surgery, uh, when my surgeon did surgery on me, he had his gloves on. And uh, I think I was asleep. But I think he did, uh, you know. And we are kind of like the gloves in the sur- on the surgeon's hands uh, in service for God. God's hand is actually doing the work. We are be- but used by Him, and we have nothing to boast of. Our salvation is not by works. Works are the result of our salvation that we would be give this eternal thank you. In verse ten, we are His workmanship. Look at verse ten. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we 
would walk in them. I remember uh, going uh, first time, I, my undergraduate degree is in fine arts and in painting. And uh, in fact, Don kids me, I was the only logger in Northwest Montana with a beret <laughs> and a paintbrush. No. You know, God has a great sense of humor, you know, how he directs our lives. But uh, I remember going through uh, my education and uh, we would look at pictures and books and slides of famous paintings because there were no famous museums close to Missoula, Montana. And, uh, and then uh, one time I was in Chicago and I went to the Chicago Art Institute, Chicago Museum of Art. And uh, for the first time in my life, I saw paintings that I'd only seen in books. Amazing, amazing things. It was so different to stand before a Rembrandt and a Monet and on and on, just, uh, just all of these paintings. And I noticed especially the portraits of people. And, you know, the question I didn't ask is, who is that person? The question I ask is, who painted that portrait? And when I looked at the little tag, I could see who the artist was. But it, and usually if there was history of who was in the painting, that was there too. But it was more important to know who painted it. And we are his workmanship. Salvation is not by us. It is not our work. God's salvation is his workmanship. It's only used here, this word workmanship, it's only used here in Romans 1.20, and it denotes a work of art or a masterpiece. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how often you think of yourself as a work of art or a masterpiece. I admit, I don't do that very often, probably not often enough. But as you read this passage, recognize that it's not human works. That's a different word in Ephesians 2.9. Believers are God's workmanship because they've been created only a work that God can do in Christ Jesus. And our purpose is that we would walk in the do good works, not do good works, but walk in them, that God prepared in advance for us. When we see life from that perspective, it changes our day-to-day -day challenges and opportunities when we notice that God has prepared these things beforehand, and I walk in them. Think of that lifestyle of walking in these opportunities. I've often told the story about when Don and I were new believers, and we were uh, going to, I don't know where we were going, but we were all dressed up, and we stopped out uh, at friend's house, and, and uh, Gary and Annette, uh, and she was on her own. Gary was somewhere else, but they have all these horses, and, and uh, she was pregnant, about uh, nine and a half months pregnant, and... And she had to go out and feed the horses, and I'm standing there in my good clothes, and I did not help her. We got back in our vehicle and went to our engagement, whatever it was. And to this day, I re recall that that was a good work God prepared beforehand, and I had a choice to walk in it or not, and I chose not to. And uh, so that was a, a learning lesson for me to have my eyes open and to be willing to walk in the good works that God has before us. Uh, Henry Ironside, uh, Harry Ironside, excuse me, said, we do not become saints by saintliness, but we should be characterized by saintliness because we are saints. The Apostle Paul has written about the bad news and the good news, and the bad news should sober us up and should give us a new view of those people around us, whether it's our own families or our classmates or our coworkers or just friends in the neighborhood who do not know Jesus as their Savior because that's where they are in verses 1 through 3. That's where they're still at. And you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, we understand what Winston Churchill meant. If you've ever read about Winston Churchill, remember he fought in the Boer Wars 
and in Ethiopia as a young man. But he once said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being shot at and missed. (laughs) And, you know, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were shot at because of original sin, because of Satan and his demons in verses 1 through 3. But God, and that's where it missed, because when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation in you if you're in Christ Jesus alone. So we've all, in that sense, been shot at. We've all died spiritually, but God has given us this new life, this new hope. And while we are dead, we may respond to his gift of life and receive new spiritual life, just like the woman at the well in John. Jesus met her, and her eyes were opened, and she was given new life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are the Almighty God. And I ask that you would grant to us today that we would comprehend the magnitude and significance of the blessings which have been given to us. I ask that you'd open our minds to understand and our hearts to appreciate that we may glorify you fully. And that because of your grace and your mercy, your love and kindness, that we would live accordingly in light of those truths. And really, in some respects, it seems beyond our comprehension because you are infinite, uh, what you have done for us, not only in forgiving us our sins, but also making us your spiritual children. We understand enough to know that uh, of ourselves we are not worthy. We cannot add or subtract from this great salvation you've given to us, and we thank you for the great honor of being called your children. And we thank you for the hope, and we thank you for the joy. And Lord, may we grasp onto your grace each day. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen.